hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 217 <coughs> of our segment of Through the Bible in One Year. So just a brief reminder, one you should have already read for day <coughs> 217, you should have read Ezra chapters 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 2 verse 5, Psalm 27, 7 through 14, in Proverbs 22, uh, Proverbs 20 verses 22 and 20. <coughs> Three. So our focus for day 217 is on Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. So what we have just finished seeing prior to this section was the first really big fight <coughs> in church history. And we saw this fight revolved around whether salvation is through grace by faith, <coughs> or does it require works? So this question and the fight that caused it led to a meaning being called of all the early church owners, and thankfully, thankfully, their decision, which was guided by the Holy Spirit and by scriptures, <coughs> was that salvation is only through grace by faith. So what we're going to see today, right, is we're going to see the, the Jerusalem Council putting this decision into writing for the Gentile believers who were still being harassed by those who wanted them to become practicing Jews before they could be saved. So we're going to pick up then in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, and we're going to take it down through verse 29. So here's what that says. <coughs> And the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas and Silas, men who, men who were leaners among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization had disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed <coughs> to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to, um, not to burden <coughs> with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <coughs> so this letter, right, states that the original Judaizers, Judaizers, excuse me, never had the blessing or the approval of the Jerusalem church. In other words, they went out without the blessing of the governing body of the church. These were people who did this all of their own accord. What we also see is that we see that the church was united against these Judaizers' teachings, right? And so we also see that they established that no other burden was necessary for the Gentiles become followers of Christ, except the, pres the prescriptions from verse 
twinting about breaking away from idolatry and immorality. So as a whole, as a whole, this letter is a brief but profound renunciation of the Judaizer's doctrine that we will get into in more detail when we get to the book of Galatians. So just hold on till we get to Acts. Excuse me, till we finish up in Acts. Then we get into Romans. Then we do the two letters to Corinthians. And then we will get into the book of Galatians. So now we're going to pick up in verse 30. And we're going to take it down to verse 35. Which says, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, (coughs) they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Taught and preached the word of the Lord. Right? So here we see they returned to Antioch. And this return to Antioch featured the reading of the letter as well as the confirmation of Judas and Silas as promised in the letter. We see that they are called prophets, and their act of prophecy was a lengthy message. For you see, prophecy includes both foretelling and preaching. So in other words, right, they not only foretold some things, they also taught and preached some things while they were there sharing this letter that the Jerusalem Council had sent out to them to refute these Judaizers' teachings. And so that's where we will pick up from there when we're next together as we see Paul and Barnabas part ways and we also see the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And so in order for you to be prepared for that, Here's what you need to read. You need to read Ezra chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 4. Psalm 28 1 through 9. And Proverbs 20, 24 and 25. Hello and welcome my faithful and loyal readers and listeners welcome to day 218 of our through the bible in one year segment <coughs> so just a brief reminder of what you should have read to be prepared for this day you should have read act i mean excuse me ezra chapter 3 verse 1 through verse uh, chapter 4 verse 23 first corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 4 Psalm 28, 1 through 9, Proverbs 20, 24 through 25. So our focus for day 218 is going to be on Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 10. So Paul and Barnabas have now returned to Syrian Antioch and have continued to preach and teach there. However, however, Paul feels called to return to the churches they started in the central coastal region of Turkey, hereafter referred to as Galatia, right? Barnabas agrees with this notion, but he wants to take along with them a man by the name of John Mark, which causes a huge argument between Paul and Barnabas, 
we see Barnabas ends up taking John Mark with him to Cyprus, and Paul ends up returning to Galatia with a man by the name of Silas. And so we're now going to see see two new characters who will join into the action. We're going to see Silas, and we're going to see a man by the name of Timothy, both who are going to play important roles. Now we're going to pick up now in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we're going to take it down through verse 41. So here's what that says. It says, Sometime later... Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here we see what, what do we see? What do we see? We see that Paul and Barnabas disagreed over John Mark who had deserted these men previously. So that would be Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Because remember we said back then that the word that Luke used in Greek for left actually could literally be more translated as (coughs) deserted. So we see this argument was so fierce that these two brothers in arms, Paul and Barnabas, ended up splitting up. We see that Barnabas then took John Mark off to his homeland of Cyprus, while we see Paul, right, taking Silas over land to Galatia. However, however, it's important to note here that Paul and Barnabas did eventually reconcile with each other and forgive each other, right? <coughs> and we also see that later on, Paul would go on to consider John Mark to be a trusted helper. Because you see, Paul goes on to, Paul mentions that John Mark was with him while he was in prison. You see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And at the end of Paul's life, while he was in Rome, Paul will go on to say that John Mark was helpful to him. We see that in Second Timothy 4, verse 11. Later, we see that John Mark became closely associated with the Apostle Peter, right? And church tradition, church history, holds that John Mark was Peter's interpreter while he was in Rome, and that John Mark's gospel, cleverly named Mark, is based on Peter's preaching. So, so what's, so what is the, what, what do we take out of this, right? So John Mark is an encouraging example for anyone who has suffered failure. However, there's one other lesson that we should learn here, and that is, at times, at times, strong disagreements are going to occur, right? They're going to occur. Uh, among believers who truly love the Lord and who truly love one another. So when these arguments cannot be settled, right, it's best to agree to disagree and to let God teach and work His will in the lives of all who are concerned. So in other words, what we're saying here, we're saying here that Differences in opinions that lead to a separation, as we see in the case of Paul and Barnabas, must never involve a lingering bitterness, or a lingering resentment, 
or a lingering hostility towards one another, right? Because you see, both Paul and Barnabas continued Uh, their their work for God with his blessing and with his power regardless of the disagreement that they had over whether or not to take John Mark with them on this trip to strengthen the churches that they had already established. So now we're going to pick up in chapter 16 verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 5, which says this. Paul came to Derby, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. <coughs> Excuse me. The believers Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Grew daily in numbers. <coughs> so we see here, we see now, we see Timothy coming in, another man who's going to play an important role in the ministry of in the life and the ministry of Paul, right? <coughs> so Timothy and his family were more than likely <coughs> converted by Paul on his first missionary journey. And the ground here, the the basis on which the basis for which Timothy was circumcised was the fact that his heritage, his Jewish heritage, was well known, right? So in other words, what we're saying is that to other Jews, Timothy was considered of Jewish descent because his mother was Jewish. So remaining uncircumcised, remaining uncircumcised, would have been an unnecessary stumbling block to Jewish listeners as Paul and Timothy ministered to them. And so then we also see that to the Gentiles, Timothy was considered a quasi-Jew because though his father was Greek, his family, Timothy's family, raised him in the Jewish faith. So the only thing he was lacking at this point in time to be considered fully Jewish was for him to be circumcised. Right, so, in other words, so what's going on here, right? So we're seeing here, we're seeing once again Paul's practice of beginning evangelism in the synagogue, right? And it was this practice, right, that made Timothy's circumcision, right, a matter of wisdom with absolutely no saving significance. Why did it have no saving significance? Because Timothy was already saved. He had been saved by grace through faith. He wasn't saved through the act of having his foreskin removed. He had his foreskin removed to make him more appealing to the Jewish believers, to the Jewish people that he was going to be preaching to, but it had absolutely no saving significance. So what we see is that after being circumcised, Timothy would go on to join Paul in telling the good news, telling the good news of the council's decision, right? So he would tell them of this good news of the council's decision. So now we're going to pick up 
in uh, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and we're going to take it through verse 10, which will be the very end of this section, right, which says this, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Perga and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And they came to the border of Myasia, or Myasia. They tried to enter by Inthia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Myasia and down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Right. So what's going on here? What's happening here in this probably the most crucial of passages outside of what you saw happen on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. So here's what's going on right here. Here, So the Perga and Galatia region that we can refer to here refers to the area west of Lystra and Derby. So what we're going to see, so a, we need to understand here, right, is that a major theme in the book of Acts is that the expansion of Christianity, right, was not a work of human beings, but the work of God. And so we also see, we see that Paul's effort here meets with hindrance until he received the Macedonian vision, until he receives this vision of a man from Macedonia who's begging him to come over there and help them, right? So this is a major turning point in the book of Acts, right? Because up until this point in time, the gospel had only ever been preached in Asia whether it be in Palestine, whether it be in Turkey, whether it be in other regions of Asia. Up until this point in time, it had not crossed over into Europe, right? Now it's going to cross over into Europe. So one other thing to note here, right, is that we need to note here in Acts, in this last verse, right, it says, uh, after, which says that after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So that's verse 10, right? So that First, there's a pronoun shift, right? Look, Uk shifts pronoun uses uses. He goes from he slash they to the pronoun we, suggesting here that Luke joined the team at Troas. And so, what we need to understand is that these reports throughout these we sections are those of a participant in the events, not someone who is merely giving an account of events that he heard about, but he's talking about events that he actually participated in, that he actually saw himself. And so that's where we're going to pick up tomorrow, as we see Paul and his team, right? Paul and his team of missionaries finally cross from Asia into Europe, marking a major turning point not only in church history, but in world history. Because now all of a sudden, what was an Eastern mystery cult is now going to move into the mainstream by crossing over an invisible boundary line into the part of the world that held things that were considered to be mainstream.
And in order for you to be prepared for that, here's what you need to read before we are next together. You need to read Ezra chapter 4 verse 24 through chapter 6 verse 22. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse of uh, chapter 3 verse chapter 3 verses 20 uh, verses 5 through 23 excuse me Psalm 29 1 through 11 and Proverbs 20 26 through 27 hello and welcome my faithful and loyal readers and listeners welcome to day 219 of our the Bible in one year segment so just a brief reminder of what you should have read on this day to be prepared for this. You should have read Ezra chapter uh, Ezra chapter four verse twenty-four through chapter six verse twenty-two. First Corinthians chapter three verses five through twenty-three. Psalm twenty-nine one through eleven, and Proverbs twenty twenty-six through twenty-seven. So our focus for day 219 will be on Acts chapter 16 verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> so when we were last together, we saw Paul and his new traveling companion Silas set off on another missionary journey with their objective on this new missionary journey being to move from Asia into Europe. But unfortunately, there was a small problem with this plan, and that problem was that God had not yet ordained that part of Paul's mission. But fortunately, by the end of our passage from the last time we were together, right, we saw Paul receive a vision of a man in Macedonia begging Paul to come to Macedonia to help him. And that is where we will pick up today, right? So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 16. We're going to do verses 11 and 12 to start off with. So here's what that says. It says, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Nepolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. They stayed there for several days. So let's unpack this, right? So the distance from Troas to Neapolis was more than 150 miles or 240 kilometers, right? And so the island of Samothrace, which is another place that is mentioned here, was a rough midway point between Troas in Nepolis, and its high mountain made it easy to spot. And so the best port was in the capital city of the same name, Samothrace, on the island's north shore. And so the next major place to be sea named is this town of Philippi, right, which was Macedonia's best port outside of Thessalonica, right? So the seasonal winds, right, are more favorable for Paul's voyage here than those that we're going to see in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. So now let's talk about the city of Philippi, because this is where we're going to spend quite a lot of time over the next several times that we are together, right? So the city of Philippi was 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, by land from the port of Neapolis. It had been a Roman colony since about 42 BC. And because of that, its citizens were therefore citizens of Rome. 
So this city, the city of Philippi, took its colonial status very seriously, right? So how do we know this? We know this because over 80% of its inscriptions are in Latin, not in Greek, which would have been the more native language for the Philippians. So it was a largely agrarian town. In it an estimated that its population was at only 10,000 or even lower than that at about 5,000. So it wasn't a very big city, right? But it played a major important role, right? And why? Why did it play a major important role? And why was it so prosperous when it was such a small city? And that's because its location was strategic, right? As the eastern end of the (coughs) the major Via Ignatia, which was an overland route to the eastern coast of the Adriatic, and so it was thus it was connected to Italy by sea, right? So it it was the far eastern end of this major road that connected it to the Adriatic Sea, and because it was connected to the Adriatic Sea, it was then connected to Italy by this route, so it could get a lot more commerce, which made it commercially powerful. Right? So we need to understand Thessalonica was Macedonia's capital. That was the capital city of Macedonia. But Philippi was the most respected city in the first of Macedonia's four districts. So Luke may simply Luke may simply call it a leading city without implying that no other cities merited the same title. There were probably other leading cities in the other districts, but Philippi was of such great importance because it sat on the end of this major road that connected it to the Adriatic, which made it a great place to go and preach the gospel. So now we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to take it through verse 15. So here's what that says. Uh, hold on. Oh, so, um, here we go. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expect to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She persuaded us. So let's deal with what's going on here, right? So it says they came that went outside the city, this says they went outside the city to a river, right? So that river was the Gigantes River, which was about a mile and a half, or 2.4 kilometers, to Philippi's west, reached by means of the Via Ganatia, which made it outside the city gate. However, there are some scholars, right, that think that Luke instead means the Creek Creates, which was closer to Philippi, or an ancient stream on Philippi's east. It really doesn't matter which one it was, right? Because in any case, whether or not we're talking about a major river, or we're talking about some small little ancient 
dream, this Purian Jewish, Jewish ritual included purifying their hands. Right, so their rituals included washing their hands and included washing their hands rather frequently. Right? So, in a city without a synagogue, which more than likely Philippi was a city without a synagogue, right? One would go and look for sympathizers with Judaism. Excuse me, one would look for sympathizers with Judaism together on the Sabbath near water because they would have to wash their hands before taking part in their worship service. So we also need to note here that a large majority of Gentile sympathizers with Judaism were women. And why is that the case? Because they would receive less, um, they would not lose, they would lose less status by becoming sympathizers with Judaism. And in the case of them ended up them ending up being converted to Judaism, they would not risk the pain that would be involved with circumcision if males converted. So let's deal with what else is going on here, right? Because now we're going to move on. So now we know where this is taking place. We know it's taking place at the river, and why is it taking place at the river? Because that's where the Jewish people the sympathizers with Judaism would gather because they would have this need to richly wash their hands. So now let's deal with the fact they were speaking to the women who gathered there, right? So Macedonian women exercised much more social power and that in including in that the, in religion than did women in most of traditional Greece to the southwest. So that would be in places like Athens, Corinth, you name it, any any place in southwestern Greece, down into the heartland of classical Greece, right? <coughs> So we see this city there mentioned by the name of Thyatira, which was in Western Asia Minor, which was strong in textiles, and it was in the and it was in the ancient region of Lydia, right, making Lydia a fitting name for the woman that Paul and Silas met along this river and were able to convert to Christianity, right? So, so now let's talk about the fact that it says, what does it say? So they, uh, so one of those women listening was from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Right, so now let's deal with this fact that she was a dealer in purple cloth. So how was this purple cloth made, right? So how was this purple cloth made, right? So some scholars are gonna tell you that 10,000 crushed shellfish were needed to yield a single gram of the costliest purple dye, which would be the sort from Tyre. However, others believe that dyers in Thyatira and Macedonia used a less expensive substance, such as the matter plant for those in Thyatira. Right. <clears throat> so then it goes on to say that she was a worshiper of God. And then it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household, she invited us to, to her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. So come and stay at my house. So let's talk about who constituted Lydia's household. So who constituted Lydia's household is uncertain. Don't really know what constituted Lydia's household. So it could have included servants, it could have included freed persons, 
or it could have included workers, or it could have included all of them. We simply do not know. However, what we do know is that she apparently heads her own household, which could mean one of several things. It could mean she was widowed, it could mean she was divorced, or it could mean she was a prosperous, freed woman. Again, we don't know, we're not given any details, and really, details are not really needed on this matter, because it's not really important. However, the key point here, right, the key point that we need to get from this, right, because it says, what does it say? Um... So it says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, right? Did Lydia forcefully baptize her entire household? No. This was not a mass conversion event like you would see during the Spanish conquest of Mexico or the Spanish conquest of South America or any of the other European conquest of native peoples during the age of exploration. That's not what happened here, right? So what does happen here, right? So what we see happening here is that we see that Lydia's conversion more than likely led to such a great change in her that it convicted her entire household of the need for salvation, which is what ultimately led to her entire household being baptized. Because they saw this change in this woman they knew who was already a, as it says in the passage, a worshiper of God. Now she has taken this other step forward. We, they know she worships God, and we're not talking about she worshiped the ancient Greek gods. We're talking about she worshiped the one true God. And so they saw this, and they wanted this for themselves, right? So now let's come and let's, so we already talked about, right, that the purple dye was more than likely made from some plant, or was made from some shellfish. Now let's talk about, let's say she was a dealer in purple cloth. Right, she may not have been making, manufacturing it, but she was dealing in it, that means she was buying it. She was selling it, and quite possibly involved in the manufacture of it, right? So let's deal with this. These people know that as dealers in purple cloth, right? So they could be persons of means. In other words, they could be people who had lots and lots and lots of money. And more than likely they did, because purple was considered the color of royalty. And it's something that only royalty would wear, right? However, what is important to note here is that Lydia is technically a foreigner in the city of Philippi. Even though she is working there as a dealer in purple cloth, she is not a natural citizen of the city of Philippi. Right? So what are we talking about there? So what does it say at the very, very end, right? It says, she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. So we're talking about the hospitality that she offered to Paul and Silas, which was a prized virtue in the ancient Mediterranean world. It didn't turn strangers away if they were looking for a place to stay that was considered to be rude crude and socially unacceptable behavior. In fact, Lydia would count an honor for this ministry team to come and stay with her. Right? And it would not be uncommon, it would not be unusual 
for the Jewish people of this era, of this time period, to provide their guests with lodging for three weeks if they found their guests to be trustworthy. And why would they do this? They would do it because inns at this point in time were notorious for things like prostitution and other things that made them less than ideal for Jewish travelers. Because you see, Jewish travelers don't partake in prostitutes. And they probably didn't partake in the drinking and the gambling that would go on at these inns and whatever other vices that these Greeks would have gotten up to in these inns. And so what we need to understand is that probably, perhaps, about 10% of ancient benefactors were women. So 10% of the people that provide hospitality would be women. Which means that critics of the moment could attack it for depending on a woman's financial support. And so that's what we're going to pick up when we're next together as we see Paul and Silas arrested for essentially preaching the gospel. And in order for you to be prepared for that, you need to read Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 through chapter 8 verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Psalm 30 verses 1 through 12, and Proverbs 20, 28 through 30. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 220 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So just a brief reminder of what you should have read to be prepared for this particular segment. You should have read Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 through chapter 8 verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Psalm 30 verses 1 through 12, and Proverbs 20, 28 through 30. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16, and going all the way down through verse 40. So what we have seen so far is we've seen Paul have a vision of a man from Macedonia begging him to come over there and help them. And so it was this vision that led him and Silas to cross over from Asia into Europe. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to see the first negative consequences to this bold and spirit-inspired journey. And the negative consequences that we are going to see is we're going to see Paul and Silas being thrown into jail. We're going to see them thrown into prison. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 21, which says this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men, are, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to to accept or practice. To accept or practice. So the female slave that we see here is said to have been as excuse me, said to have had a spirit by which she prophesied. And so the idea here was that since her people were hosting a God who spoke through them. So there is there should be absolutely no doubt in your mind that some in fact most of these people were charlatans. But the one here, this person here, this female slave, was actually it was actually a demonic possession, right? She was possessed by a demon that was causing her to do all of these things. So in other words, these this girl's words were not actually given in support for the gospel, but was actually an attempt to hinder the gospel. So she spoke of the Most High God, right? which could quite possibly be a reference to Zeus, who was the highest god in the Greek pantheon. He was the chief god. He was the god of thunder and lightning, right? He was the king of the gods. He would have been the Greek equivalent to the Roman Jupiter, or to the Norse god Odin, whichever whichever pantheon you are more familiar with. So Zeus was the Greek equivalent of that. Zeus is the most widely known because he's the one that we all know from Greek mythology, which happens to be the mythology most, most studied in school, unfortunately. <coughs> so Paul, what we then see is Paul, after many days of this hindrance decides he's gonna cast this demon out. He's had enough. This demon has gotta go. This demon is standing in his way and Paul don't like nothing to stand in his way. So it's time for this demon to go and that's what Paul does. However, his actions do not make this woman's owners very happy. Why? Why would they not happy? Because they lost their money making right? So which caused the owners to then haul Paul and Silas before the highest officials. So what happens, right? So they haul before the highest officials. Right? So in other words, they drag them into the marketplace, or they drag them into the central public square, which was called the Agora. Which was where trials like this would have taken place so that everybody could see what was going on, what was happening. Right. <coughs> so we can see here they made this charge, right, of unlawful customs. And these charges were both false and they were strategic, right? So they were false because of the law. New cults were illegal under Roman law, right, right, right? So you couldn't have a new cult, you couldn't start a new religion, but Jews could practice their faith, and because Paul and Silas were both recognized as Jews, they weren't really introducing any new customs, they were just making some small slight changes to pre-existing customs. So the, that was the, that was the false part of these charges. Now to get to the strategic part of these charges. So the strategy of these charges, of this charge, was to appeal to xenophobia. And if you don't understand what that word means, I'm going to tell you what it means, right? Xenophobia is the fear or the suspicion of foreigners, of those 
who are not like you, those who don't look like you, those who don't act like you, those who don't talk like you, those who come from a different country than you do, right? So what they were playing on here is they were playing on the suspicions of the Romans regarding those who were Jewish. So now let's pick up in verse 22, and we're going to take it through verse 27, which says this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. To guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake, the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Hmm, what a thing is going on here. So let's understand what's going on here, right? So victims, or those who were accused of crimes, or customarily had their robes stripped off before a beating. So the people who were doing the beating were called lictors, and they were a group of men with rods who accompanied the city officials in public processions, often beating back crowds. So Paul and Silas were then were jailed. They were placed in stocks, which were pieces of wood that fastened their feet together and prevented mobility. Right? So, so what happened here, right, happened, so as Paul and Silas were singing and praying, right, at midnight an earthquake shook the prison foundations. Right, so it shook the prison foundations, and it essentially broke open all the doors. So what then happens, the jailer sees all these doors are opened, and if all the prisoners escaped, the jailer would face public shame and a severe penalty. The jailer would have to take the of those he was guarding if they escaped. So if they were sentenced to death, he would be executed. If they were sentenced to life in prison, he would have to spend the rest of his life in prison. So, uh, so what we see here is that given the large number of possible escapees, this jailer was overwhelmed at the prospect of having to spend quite possibly the rest of his life locked up in a Roman jail. So now let's pick up in verse 28 and take it to verse 34, which says this, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Rushed in, trembling before Paul and Silas. Uh, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. He and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. So what happens here, right? Paul sees this jailer, but ready to kill himself. He's about ready to off himself, rather than face whatever punishment might be coming his way for quote unquote allowing these men to escape, even though he had no 
even though he had no part in whatever escape may or may not have happened. So what does Paul do? Paul calls out to this fearful jailer, and he tells him, hey, we, we were all still here. Ain't none of us left. And so we see the jailer's response. What is his response? His response is trembling. His his response is falling down, which suggests that he was aware that he had been in close proximity to the Holy God of whom Paul had spoken. And so then he goes on to make this big question about salvation. What must I do to be saved? And right, so this question that he asks was very likely due to an earlier but unreported conversation this man had had with Paul and Silas. Because right, he was guarding these men day and night. He would have been with them day and night. He would have seen them. He would have had a chance to talk with them and quite possibly get to know them. To say that they believe something something so strongly that they're willing to be in jail, they're willing to be beaten, they're, being, they're willing to be put in stocks, they're willing to have their feet bound so that they can't move, right? So he had this conversation with them, and now he's seen the power of their God at work, and now all of a sudden he wants to know, what must I do to be saved? I know I'm guilty of something. What do I gotta do to get rid of this guilt? What do I gotta do to be free from this guilt? And Paul and Silas tell him exactly what he gotta do. Right? But, 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 here's the key. Here's the key. That's again, again, Paul's response is in no way. Is in no way. Suggesting a household salvation in any other way that each member of this man's household individually decided to receive Christ. Because you see, everyone in the house who believed on Jesus would be saved, right? It doesn't say everyone in the house. It doesn't say, well, because this jailer believed, right? They would be saved. It says everyone in the. It says, what does it say? Uh, he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. He and his whole household. It doesn't say just he and he forced his whole household to believe. No, it says he and his whole household. Because see, his whole household was probably within close proximity to this jail. And they had just seen this massive prison shaking earthquake. They had just seen men who had every reason to leave and flee decide not to leave and not to flee. So now let's pick up now in verse 35 and take it to the very end, which would be verse 40, which says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the, with, with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul sent to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So what's going on here, right? So in the morning, the officials decide we need to release these dudes because they ain't really done nothing wrong. So we're going to release them. Right. 
or it could quite possibly have been they figured these men had suffered enough. So either way, we gotta get rid of these men. We gotta get rid of the evidence. We can't kill them because they ain't really done nothing wrong. But we need to get rid of them. We need to get them out of our jail. We need to get them out of our system. Right? So in the system, as we see that Paul makes this bold and his and his <coughs> heroic response. How is it bold and how is it heroic? Because what does Paul do? Paul asserts his rights. Paul is a Roman citizen. In no way, shape, or form should Paul have been treated in the way he was treated without being tried first. And I don't mean a trial like what happened here. We're talking about a trial before an actual judge, not a trial before some backwoods, backroad county judge, some justice of the peace. We're talking about an actual trial before a judge and a jury in today's terms. Paul did not get that, and according to Roman law, Paul could not have been, should not have been punished <coughs> in the way that he was punished without there first being a trial. However, Paul's purpose was more than his own outrage at injustice. What was what then what was his ultimate purpose? And so he wanted to create fear in the officials to generate caution for future similar events. Right. He wanted to have them think twice before they did this again. Not just to him, but to anybody. Right? Which is the Roman citizens were not to be so ill-treated. Right? And so when Paul says he was a Roman citizen, he said he and Silas were Roman citizens. All of a sudden, the officials decide, uh-oh, uh-oh, we done messed up. We done screwed up big now, boys. We gotta cover this up in some way, shape, or form. Right? And they were so afraid that Paul would report this abuse to somebody higher up the chain of command. Higher up in the Roman hierarchy, right? That they did just as Paul demanded. They let them go. They escorted them out of the jail. They escorted them out of the jail. They gave them whatever they asked for. Why? Because they was trying to keep these dudes quiet. They didn't want word of this getting back to the to to the to the to the actual Romans in Rome. That hey, we done we out here in in the sticks beating Roman citizens just simply because we can, because they was out here doing something we didn't like, and because we didn't like it, we decided we was gonna beat them. Couldn't do that in Rome. You can't do that today. And so that's where we're gonna pick up, because you see they were escorted out of Philippi, and they went back to Lydia's house, and after they stayed at Lydia's house, then they were gonna move on to a new area, and that's where we're going to pick up tomorrow, because we're going to see them moving from Philippi into Thessalonica, and then into Berea. So in order for you to be prepared to discuss that, you need to read Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, through chapter 9, verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Psalm 31, 1 through 8, in Proverbs 21, 1 through 2.